Well, good morning. Did any of our children stick around? They came early today, so they've, they've been in two services, so I know some of them came and slipped out afterwards, but uh, any of our children here, thank you for leading us. In fact, you've helped us to answer our question today. Question, do you want to be great? Do you want to be great? Well, Brother Wade, we're not that kind of church, right? We're, we're a humble church. We don't talk about greatness. But do you want to be great? And our children gave us the answer, right? Everybody stand. Come on, everybody stand. Humor your pastor. Ready? It was like hands. Put your hand up. Hands. Hands. Wasn't that great? God made our hands to do what? To pray. To pray, to serve, wasn't it? To serve others. God gave us these hands. Be seated. Thank you for humoring me today. We are talking about encountering Jesus in the Gospel of Matthew. And over these last weeks, we've encountered Jesus as he's encountered disciples, as he's encountered hungry crowds. As last week, he encountered a mother, a mother with great faith and courage, a a mother who was a Gentile. She was a Canaanite woman, yet still she knew that faith and courage to approach Jesus could bring healing to her own child. Today, we meet another mother, little different approach or experience of this particular mom. She was a helicopter mom before they had helicopters. This is a a young man's worst nightmare. Mom saying, have you talked to your teachers yet? Have you talked to your coach yet? Have you talked to your boss yet? If you don't talk to your boss or your coach or something, I'm going to go talk to him. I'm going to take you and we're going to go talk to him. All right, so let's turn to Matthew 20, and let's pick up this story about this helicopter mom who I, I suspect had told her sons that they need to go talk to Jesus. Oh, we'll talk to him later, mom. We'll, we'll, we'll talk to him later. And she, I can just see this. Have you talked to Jesus? Today? No. Well, you come with me. And she grabbed them both by the hands, and we're going to go find Jesus. So let's pick up the story. Chapter 20, verse 20. Then the mother of the sons of Zebedee came to Jesus with her sons. There it is. Now, who is this this woman? Who's this mom? And who are the sons of Zebedee? Well, well, the sons of Zebedee are James and John, two of the disciples. And her mom, as we look at the the gospel stories, particularly in the, the resurrection accounts, what we discover is that this most likely is this, their mom is Salome, Salome, S-A-L-O-M-E, is, is their, their mom. And what we discover is that she is Mary, the mother of Jesus's mom, sister. So this is Aunt Salome. And first cousins, James and John. Okay? So that gives you an idea. So Aunt Salome is going to see Jesus with the boys. The mother of the sons of Zebedee came to Jesus with her sons and bowing down and making a request of him. And he said to her, what do you wish? And she said, command that in your kingdom these two sons of mine... Your two cousins, you know, blood cousins, okay, let's, let's make sure they're your cousins, that one may sit on your right and one on your left. But Jesus answered, you do not know what you're asking. 
Are you able to drink the cup that I'm about to drink? And they said to him, Well, we are able. And he said to them, My cup you shall drink. But to sit on my right or on my left, this is not mine to give, but it is for those for whom it has been prepared by my Father. And hearing this, the ten became indignant with the two brothers. They became angry. And Matthew's one of the twelve. He's, he's writing this from, from their perspective. Peter is one of the other ten. I can imagine how angry he would have been when he heard, or maybe he was even listening to this conversation unfold. Hearing this, the ten became indignant with the two brothers. But Jesus called them to himself and said, You know, the rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them. And their great men exercise authority over them. But it's not this way among you. But whoever wishes to become great shall be your servant. And whoever wishes to be first shall be your slave. Just as the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve, and to give his life a ransom for many. What do you want? Isn't that the question that we all want Jesus to ask us? Oh, wait, what do you want? Just tell, what's your heart's desire? The cosmic Santa Claus, right? Come up and sit in my lap and let me, what do you want? And that's, that's almost what, what's taking place here is Salome and her two sons are going, they bow, they give their, their kind of their lip service, their worship service to Jesus in the hopes that this question's going to show up, that, that Jesus is going to say, okay, you're here, what do you want? And, and I'm, I'm certainly not disparaging the invitation that God gives us to come and, and to seek him honestly and fervently in prayer and to bring our requests to him. But as you've seen by this story, there's, there's something else going on here. Their, their worship is not pure in the sense that, that it appears on this occasion that they're coming to bow because they want something. And, and they think that if we can be in good standing, if we... You know, let's get up. It's Saturday night. It's late, but we're going to go to church tomorrow. Let's put on our, our best clothes and our, our best attitudes and smiles. And let's go to Sunday school and church today. Because you know what? Tomorrow is a big day, and, and we need to be on God's good side. And we want Jesus to ask us, what do you want? So that we can tell him all these things. Well, Jesus, I, I, I want power. Well, Jesus, I, I want to be great. I want to be in charge. I want to have wealth. I want to have the easy life so that others are serving me. What do you want was the question that Jesus asked. I assume he he knew. I assume he understood what was coming his way. And how quickly Jesus must have recognized their motives and their selfishness in the midst of their worship. What do you want? John Calvin calls this encounter with Jesus a story of human vanity. A vanity or ambition that's characterized by the search for success without sacrifice. 
that's characterized by a sense of feeling superior over other people. It's the quest of entitlement. Well, Jesus, you know, ask me, I'm going to come worship so you can ask me what I want because you know what? I'm, well, you did sacrifice to be here today and we did come and worship you and we are your first cousins and this is your aunt and it seems to me that, that you owe us something. We're entitled to sit on your right and on your left. The question of greatness, and, and again, I don't think there's within the right context to say, well, you want to be great. You, you, want, to, you want your life to count and to matter is a significant and important question that we all ask. It, it seems to me that the desire to be great may be a part of the same conversation as our relationship to money and to wealth. Money in and of itself, wealth in and of itself is not evil. In fact, wealth can be used for great good. But those who want money for their own selfish purposes soon discover that as Paul said, I believe, money's not evil, but it's the love of money. It's the lust after money that is the root of all evil. And I think the same may be true for greatness. Greatness in position and power in and of itself is not a, a bad thing. In fact, it can be used for great good. But it's when we want power and position and greatness for our own glory, for our own selfish pleasures, so that we can control and manipulate others. And so that others will look at us and go, wow, there, there's an important person. That that is when we would desire something that's not good. But when we understand that the pursuit of, of greatness enables us and allows us to do what is good and to do what is right and to do it not for our glory but for the glory of God, it seems to me that that's a, a good and worthy pursuit. So the disciples come and say, well, what do you want? Well, we want to be great. We, we want to be the people of power. And I love as we read this story, I love Jesus' response to their request. I love the way that Jesus is gracious and compassionate with them. He doesn't respond to their request angrily. He doesn't respond in a way that shows that he's exasperated or he's disillusioned. He doesn't get angry at them and say, haven't you guys been listening? That's not what we've been talking about. But instead, he responds gently and graciously and compassionately and lovingly. Notice what's taking place in this context. Look in verse 17. Matthew wants us to know that Jesus is preparing to go to Jerusalem. He, he's preparing to go. This is his last trip to Jerusalem. Just a chapter over in chapter 21 is the triumphal entry. Jesus understands that this is his last trip to Jerusalem, that things are about to happen. And he goes on in verse 18. We're going to Jerusalem, guys, so that I can be condemned to death, so that I can be handed over to the Gentiles and mocked and scourged and crucified. And it's as if 
the disciples, they didn't hear that. It was just, we're going to Jerusalem. We're going to Jerusalem. We're going so that the king can be enthroned and established. And it's like they just shut him off after he said, we're going up to Jerusalem. And, and because the next thing they're talking about is not, wow, you're, you're going to do what? You're going to be, you're going to be crucified and arrested by, what does that mean? for? No, they don't, they don't hear that. And yet Jesus responds compassionately. He responds like a teacher wanting to influence and transform his students and his disciples because what he is teaching them, the life that he is introducing them to, the kingdom that is breaking in through Jesus is difficult to understand. It's totally counter to the culture in which they are living. It's totally counter to the culture that they lived in. And church, even today, the kingdom of God is totally countercultural from where we live today. So Jesus responds graciously as a, a loving teacher. And he says, guys, I, I don't know if you can handle the cup that I'm about to drink from. And besides, that, it's not even my privilege, not my authority to assign who's going to sit on the left and the right. That's, that's the Father's position. So you're asking me something that, that you can't, that, that I can't grant. And I, and I think very humbly and very honestly and very loyally, when Jesus asked the question, well, do you guys know what you're talking about? Do you, do you, are you going to be able to drink from my cup? And James and John respond, yes, we're committed, we're loyal, we're with you to the end. We, we can drink from your cup. The cup of Christ, the cup of Jesus is the cup of suffering. And too often we, we neglect and forget that. Jesus says, yes, you're You're right. You can and you will drink from my cup. Acts chapter 12 verse 2 tells us that James is the first of the apostles to be executed, to be put to death. He's the first apostle who becomes a martyr, beheaded by Herod. The same who a few weeks ago had John the Baptist beheaded. John is the, the apostle, the, the one whom Jesus loved in the Gospel of John. John is, is one who we believe lives to the ripe old age of around 100. He's a pastor, a, a, a teacher, a, a writer. The, the apostle that was able to tell so many Christians for a generation, even two generations that came after him about walking with Jesus and seeing the great things that Jesus did. Even John partook of the cup of suffering, the cup of Christ. In Revelations chapter 1, verse 9, he writes this. He says, I am a partaker in the tribulation and the kingdom and the perseverance which are in Jesus. Exiled his last year, a disciple who had experienced the cup of tribulation, who understood what it meant to persevere in faith, William Barclay noted that there's a, a Roman coin that has been found. On this Roman coin is a picture of an ox. 
And on this coin with this ox is the picture of an altar and a plow. And the inscription in this coin that has a picture of an ox facing an altar and a plow, the inscription reads, ready for either. In those days, the ox was one of those primary beasts that was used for sacrifice, that was slaughtered for the altar, that was put to death. And yet also the ox was the primary animal that was used to plow and to till the grounds so that they could be planted and and harvested. And here we have the picture of this ox with the inscription that this ox is ready for either the plow or the altar. And I can't help believe that, that the same is true for us as Jesus says, can you drink from my cup? That for some, like James, it means that the altar is near. Excuse me, yeah, the altar is near to be sacrificed upon, to give your life as a martyr. But for others, like John, the call is to the plow, to spend a life of service, of breaking up the hard ground, of plowing for the sake of the gospel. Are you ready for either one? For you see, to drink from the cup of Christ means that we follow him wherever he goes. It means to obey him and to be like him in all situations. It means that whether in good times or in bad times, that we follow after him. It means that whether in prosperous times or in times of suffering and sacrifice, that we follow after Christ. Do you know what you're asking when you ask to to come and to be a part of my kingdom? Do you know what we're asking when we say we want to drink the cup of Christ? And notice at some point, we don't know if there's a a gap in time or if the apostles have kind of over uh, eavesdropped and have overheard the conversation, but at some point the other 10 disciples become aware of this conversation and they become angry, indignant. They're furious at James and John. How can you be asking this from Jesus? I suspect they're not angry at the question per se as much as they are about, you guys beat us to the punch. We want to be first and second. And what gives you the right to ask before we did? Because why? Because they're operating out of a, a paradigm that, of power and of position and of prestige that the world has promoted But again, Jesus graciously responds to the 12 as maybe he he walks in on this conversation or or the other 10 join them in the midst of the conversation and the anger and the accusation begins to build and to grow. And Jesus, again, as a teacher, as someone who loves and is compassionate towards these men, catches their attention and he says, wait a minute. It's the great men, the Gentiles, the great men of of the culture that's not the Romans, the Greeks, these great men exercise authority over each other. Isn't that a, a powerful, powerful word picture and metaphor for us? The rulers of this world exercise authority. You know people like that. They have a little bit of authority. They have a little bit of power. And they want to make sure you know it. 
And so they just dream of ways they can exercise that authority and that power over you. Teachers, bosses, spouses, political leaders, religious leaders. How can can we exercise our authority over you? And Jesus says, this is the way the great men and women of the world live, is to exercise authority, to exercise control and dominance over ours. The great men and women of this world command and people are expected to jump. The Greek here is intense, it's strong over the ideas of domineering and authoritarian. And we are just like the rulers of the Gentiles. We love to exercise authority. We love to let people know that we're in charge. But Jesus continues, verse 26, but it's not this way among you. It's not this way in my kingdom. And Jesus goes on, he says, and whoever wishes to be great among you Okay, if you want to be great, you need to understand that in the kingdom of the world, to be great means you exercise your authority. But in my kingdom, if you want to be great, then here's what it means. It means to be a servant or it means to be a slave. The word servant there is the word diakonos, which is the word that we use for our word deacon. And that's, that's the expectation that we have of our deacon leaders is that they're servant leaders, that they, they serve our congregation and our fellowship, that they don't lord authority over us, but rather they serve. The word diakonos means a table waiter, a waiter of tables. Now, when you go to a restaurant, certainly it's the cook, right? It's, you want to have the chef, you want him doing his, practicing his, his skills and his, his work to bring out a delicious and scrumptious meal. You want it to taste good and you want it to look appealing and beautiful. But it's the table waiter that makes the meal. As they greet you, as they host you, as they welcome you, as they, they take, in the real fancy places, they have that little thing, they take it and they wipe the breadcrumbs off the table, Right? And they keep your glasses filled. And if you make a mess, oh, don't worry about that. Let me clean that up for you. It's the the servant, it's the table server that makes the meal. Because their purpose is to serve you and to make sure that everything is at your disposal. And that's the picture that we have of what Jesus is saying. You're called to be a table server. To wait on tables. And then he goes on and he says, and also to be a slave. Well, wait a minute. We can wrap our hands around this idea of being a table waiter, right? It's good for everyone to be a a, a table waiter at some point, right? It's good practice. But then he goes a step further and he says, but if you want to be first, you need to be a, a slave. A slave is someone who has no rights. And no claims. A slave is someone who is controlled by someone else. And Jesus says, if you want to be the greatest in the kingdom of God, you need to wait tables. And if you want to be first in the kingdom of God, you need to give up your rights. 
You need to give up your desire to control others. And you need to become the slave that serves and meets the needs of others. In the kingdom of God, greatness is serving. We are not serving one day so that we can be great and every, everybody's going to serve us. The kingdom of God is different. The kingdom of God will be different for eternity. The kingdom of God for eternity will be characterized by serving. We're not serving here for a few years so that when we get to heaven, then we can just be served all the time. In the kingdom of heaven, service is the great characteristic. For you see, Jesus flips the ideal of power and success. He flips it on its head with this revolutionary statement and dramatic reversal of how the Romans, the Greeks, and the aristocrats viewed and understood life. In the 4th century B.C., Plato writes this, How can anyone be happy when he is the slave of anyone else? From the kingdom of the world, that, that's right, right? How can anyone be happy if they're a slave of anyone? But listen to Jesus, who flips this upside down in this passage. And Jesus says, how can anyone be happy unless he's the slave of everyone else? Wow. He flips it upside down. And he calls us to a life of service. In the kingdom of God, greatness is not about what others do for you. Greatness is about what you do for others. And then Jesus continues in verse 20, uh, 28 with his own personal testimony. He says, the son of man came to serve. And the son of man came to give his life as a ransom. The incarnation, the story of God coming to live among us. The story of Emmanuel, God with us, is a story of God coming to live and to walk with us. A God who came to serve, not to be served. A God who came to wait on us, to die for us. He is our example in life and in death. He paid our ransom. Now again, isn't it interesting that Jesus is using the, the, the terminology for servant and slave. And then he says, and I've come to ransom the slaves. A ransom is what one paid to redeem a slave. A ransom was what one paid to purchase something back from someone else. We are set free. We are ransomed from our slavery to sin and our slavery to death. And the kingdom of power the kingdom that says that we must control, the kingdom that says we must lord and exercise power, the kingdom that says that we should manipulate other people. In, Genesis, in, excuse me, in Galatians chapter 5, Paul says it this way. He says we're to use our freedom to serve each other in love. So here's the question for us today. How many people have you recently helped? How many people over the last couple of days have you served and helped? Gone out of your way? Or maybe it was just in the course of your regular routine of the day, and you thought, you know what, here's a chance to serve this person. I'm going to be faithful here. Jesus says that the greatest will be the ones that serve tables 
and that the first will be the one that gives up their rights. And Jesus is our example of this. Philippians 2, verses 8 through 11, tells us that Jesus took on the form of a servant. He gave up all of his rights. He emptied himself, and he died on a cross. If if the altar is the place for us, that God is calling us, let me assure you, it it won't be filled with joy. Oh, wow, I'm I'm being slaughtered today. I'm, I'm being called a sacrifice today. On the cross, what did Jesus cry out? My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? God, Jesus feeling forsaken because why? Because he agreed to become a servant and a slave of all. Yet we continue on in this passage because God is faithful and God is good and God honors those who serve and submit themselves to others when he says that the Father highly exalted the Son that every tongue would confess and every knee would bow. Do you see that? Jesus humbled himself. He became the servant He became the slave, dying so that God could exalt him, so that God could make him great. Certainly we profess and proclaim today that Jesus Christ is the greatest who's ever lived. He is the first. Because why? Because he humbled himself to serve others today. What do you want have you come here to worship today thinking that you'll get your list covered if you come and, and then you can ask God for that because you're in good standing with Him? What, what do you want? Do you want to be a great person? Fantastic. Serve others. Do you want to be a part of a great nation? Well, of course we do. Well, then serve others. John F. Kennedy had it right when he said, Ask not what your country can do for you. Ask what you can do for your country. Kennedy understood the principle of greatness. Is that greatness is not achieved by lording over, but greatness is achieved as we serve one another. One of the great struggles and issues in our country today is that that we have switched the statement We hold our hands out and say, well, what can my country do for me? Instead of asking the question, what can we do to serve the nation, to serve the people of this nation? Do you want a great business? Then serve your customers and your clients. Serve your employers, your employees. Do you want a great church? Well, yes, we do. We want a church filled On Sunday mornings, we want a church faithful to to serve in our community. We want a church where the baptismal waters are, are being stirred and used every week. Well, then we need to learn how to serve each other and serve our community and the lost in greater ways. What do you want? And as we close today... I want to change the question a little bit as we commit to striving for greatness. Look at the monitor. Notice how the question changes from what do you want 
What do you want? What do I want? To what do you want? The question of greatness, the the question that we should be asking God as we come to the end of worship is not hoping that God would say, what do you want? Hopefully the question that we're asking that that is filling this sanctuary is, God, what do you want from us? How do you want us to serve you, God? How can I serve others? Do you want to be great? It means changing the emphasis from you to you. Let us ask this question as we finish worship today. For if we truly desire greatness in the kingdom of God, then we must learn better to serve tables. And we must learn better what it means to give up our rights so that we can serve others in more effective ways. Let's pray.